Hear now God's word. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. When the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples, then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, uh, Nicanor, Timon, Arminius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. And there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. And also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak, speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. The world continues to swirl in what appears to be a downward spiral headed down what has been called the U-bend, if you know what I mean. Um, If I may change the metaphor, the result is uh, that we might be tempted to want to hear some red meat kind of sermons that will fire us up when we see everything that's going on around us right now. But I want to suggest that we need less firing up and more settling down so that we can remember who we are and why we're here. Storming City Hall with our pitchforks and torches is not the way to change the world. We have to know what our mission is. We have to stay focused on that mission. We represent Jesus Christ to the world. That's our mission. All the time. We are his body. So it is important for us to know our history, which is why we're right now in the book of Acts. To know our story, to know where we came from, so that we know where we're going. Knowing these things enables us And it equips us for his service. If we're going to right the ship, it will be because the church was faithful to her calling. 
The church is called to instruct society in word and deed, to be the voice of God, to be the truth to the world. (coughs) I've lived long enough to learn that almost everything is a problem, even blessings. So we may as well get used to it. Everything in this world is bittersweet because this is a fallen world, and yet we are told in Scripture to rejoice in and for all things, even all those broken things. The overarching thing to remember is that God is so powerful, so glorious, so wise, and he loves us, and therefore he takes all those things and he works them together for our good. As Joseph reminded his brothers, but as for you, you meant it for evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. Our story in Acts has been describing the phenomenal growth and expansion of the church. Crowds of people, thousands of baptisms, the blessings are everywhere. Of course, one of the problems with a growing movement is it requires administration. People are usually both assets and liabilities. More and more people mean more and more things need to get done, and they need to get done fairly, and they need to get done efficiently. Everything must get organized, and then you have to have some systems, you have to have some rules. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why middle-aged people and old people lose some of their early youthful enthusiasm. After so many meals and baths and dirty diapers and homework and meetings and worship services and fellowship meals and... You get the idea. So while there, there's all this big and exciting stuff going on here in our story, <coughs> sermons and uh, healings and crowds and baptisms, even persecution, even arrest and beatings, and, and these are all big, big things that are going on. And then with such rapid growth, and, and by the way, um, In other words, there's also somebody that's going to now need to feed the widows. In other words, we're called to do it all. The big, the little, the special, the routine, inside, outside the church. And with such rapid growth, remember probably more than 30,000 people, that means every problem could become a big problem. We might ask Gary and Peggy what it was like to have a two-year-old and then be handed triplets on top of that. Um, Moreover, the devil was already stirring up trouble outside, and he was not about to neglect seeking to get a foothold inside the church. He does this with marriages. He does this with families. He does this with churches. Divide and conquer Discord always breaks 
and threatens the communion. So it's not surprising that very, very early in the life of the church, a complaint arose. There was murmuring. This is the same verb that's used in the Septuagint uh, to describe the murmuring of the Israelites against Moses in Numbers chapter 14. So this is nothing new. In addition to large numbers of people, there were ethnic groups. Uh, remember the different native languages on Pentecost that were spoken? Those were Jews who had gathered there in Jerusalem for Passover, but they came from different places. And so one of the main divisions was, in this case, between the Hellenistic or the Greek Jews and the Hebraic Jews. So that's within the church. And some were native to Jerusalem. Others had arrived more recently after being freed from captivity. Think of our own ethnic or even denominational divides in our own city. And so while families were responsible to care for their own widows, there was increasingly a larger number of refugees as well as converts uh, that didn't have families to care for them, in some cases simply because they had been baptized and perhaps even disowned as a result. Now later, in Paul's epistle to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 5, we're going to see more detailed rules and regulations established for who did and did not qualify as a widow to be able to receive that kind of aid. But in this situation, as you can imagine, the apostles had quite a bit already on their plate with thousands of people, uh, arrest and persecutions and just, just nonstop every day. But this was not a matter of the apostles regarding this kind of work that is caring for the widows as inferior to their uh, pastoral work or beneath their dignity. It was really just a matter of their calling and a division of labor. Moses faced a similar situation, you'll recall, in Exodus chapter 18. It was an administrative crisis. And so in Exodus 18, it says, So Moses father-in-law, Jethro, said to him, the thing that you do is not good. Moses, you're, you're too busy. You have too much on your plate. Both you and these people who you are, who you are with, you will surely wear yourself out. For this thing is too much for you and you're not able to perform it by yourself. Listen now to my voice. I'll give you counsel. And God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God and you shall teach them the statutes and the laws. So Moses, Jethro says, I want you to focus on teaching God's word. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of ten. So here's the model, and I I suspect very strongly the apostles were self-consciously taking that model and applying it to their new situation. Now, I know that there is some debate, uh, even in our circles, over whether Acts 6 is presenting 
the establishment of the first deacons or the office of the diaconate. And I'm not going to try to resolve that this morning here, uh, but here's what we do know. The serving of tables in verse 2 used the word diaconio, which is where we ultimately get our word for deacon. Remember, deacon just means servant. In addition, the word ministry, when it talks about the apostles giving themselves to the ministry of the word, that is diaconia, uh, which is also the same root. So both the apostles and these seven men who are now being selected uh, to relieve both the who are being selected to give some relief to the apostles as well as to the congregation and to the widows, uh, both of these were deacons of some sort, servants. We're still very, very early in the organization of the church. Uh, remember, they're still meeting at the temple. And so uh, if this is not the establishment of the office that we know as deacon, it is certainly similar to the kind of thing that will be done fairly soon in the church. And we do know that the apostles laid their hands on them, thus setting them apart for this work. Thus it seems to be the establishment of some kind of recognized office of leadership. Perhaps it was divided further later on into elders and deacons as the needs grew and uh, it became more and more obvious that there was a need for even greater administration and so forth. And so we know that there were requirements that these uh, these were to be men who were commonly recognized as men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and wisdom. As we've seen, the church is growing though primarily because the word is spreading. Thus, the priority for the apostles is the word of God and prayer, reliance upon God and a proclamation of God's word. That is the mission. That is what God is blessing. Nevertheless, the other aspects of the ministry can't be neglected. I'm reminded of that quip that uh, P.J. O'Rourke made, everybody wants to save the world, but nobody wants to help mom with the dishes. Well, the dishes, we need to help mom with the dishes here. We need to help feed the widows. Uh, so we need to do both. John will write later in 1 John 3, My little children, let us not love in word and, or in tongue, uh, but in deed and in truth. So here is real life ways of loving one another, of sacrificing and serving. But the word remained primary. So again, if we're looking at Acts as a model for what we need to be doing, how did these Christians, who were definitely a minority, how did they change the world so much? And later, very soon in Acts, they're going to be described as those that turned the world upside down. How did they do that? Because that's what we need to be doing, is turning the world upside down or right side up, as the case may be. It's through the Word. It's not through programs. It's not through a whole bunch of activities. It's not through uh, anything but that foundational declaration of the word of God, of putting the truth out there. We recall from Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and 42, then those who gladly received his word, Peter's word, were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship 
in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And in verse 7 of this chapter, it says, Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. There had to be great excitement, you imagine, among the Christians as they saw, quote, a great many of the priests coming to follow Christ. Likewise, great alarm must have simultaneously been rippling through the Jewish leadership for the same reason. And in Acts 12, 24, we also read that the word of God grew and multiplied. And Paul will expand on this in Colossians chapter 1, 5, and 6, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit. It is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. And again, Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, You welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in those who believe. It is the word of God over and over and over. And we find the foundation for this in the prophet Isaiah, chapter 55. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven And do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth in bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. You got that picture, right? God sending forth this rain and the snow and the water to water the seed. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. So in that sense, and you know I'm using this metaphorically, these are magic words. These are powerful words. These are words unlike any other words that raise the dead, that bring light, that are the truth. Now our story is now going to zoom in on Stephen. Maybe this was the first Zoom meeting. He's busy with administrative tasks, but he does not let up on his gospel ministry either. Stephen, Philip the evangelist, the conversion of Saul and Cornelius together with Peter will be used by God in very different ways to accomplish the remarkable goal of the expansion of the church. That was one of the questions I said we're trying to answer. How did this small group of believers so radically grow? How did they grow? How did they change the world as we know it? Uh, So much so that we're sitting here because of what was going on in this story. Well, God's going to use these four or five men in ways they didn't expect. It's glorious to see how God directs our lives in coordination to accomplish great things that we couldn't have foreseen. That's true for you and me as well. God is doing things. When you are faithful, 
when you pray, when you speak, when you serve. God is taking every bit of that, whether it's in your family or with your neighbors or somewhere in the community, and he can take that just like he did loaves and fishes, and he can do amazing things. And he does do amazing things. And he's still doing amazing things. Stephen will become the first martyr in the church. We'll see that in the next chapter. His preaching stirred up Jewish opposition, but in his defense before the Sanhedrin, one of the things he emphasized was that God is free to go wherever he wants to go. While the council wasn't convinced, his martyrdom seems to have had a profound influence on Saul of Tarsus. It also led to the scattering of the disciples throughout Judea and Samaria. Remember Jesus had said in Acts 1, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. This is the law of unintended consequences. That was not what the Sanhedrin intended. But it was what God intended. Philip the Evangelist in chapter 8 will be the first to preach the gospel to the despised Samaritans. And he'll lead the first African to Christ, the Ethiopian eunuch, and baptize him. Then comes the surprising conversion and commissioning of the Pharisee Saul on the road to Damascus. And that will begin the widespread outreach to the Gentiles. Cornelius the centurion will be the first Gentile convert. And the gift of the Spirit authenticated his inclusion among the Messianic community on the same terms as their Jews, overcoming even the prejudice of the apostle Peter. And soon after these men, the scene is set for the first missionary journey uh, that is recorded in Acts 13 and 14. Well, back to our text in Acts 6, verses 8 and 9. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. So in addition to a complaint that arose, now a dispute arises outside the church. Stephen was not only administering tables and taking care of widows, he was also still busy speaking up and speaking out. There seems to have been a group within the synagogue that was comprised of those who had been freed from slavery, perhaps foreign Jews who had now come to live in Jerusalem. And this group is now pushing back on Stephen's teaching. These appear to be conservatives. And it appears that Stephen was getting the best of them in the debate. And so they started a smear campaign. If only they'd had Twitter to advance their cause. They they were claiming that Stephen had blasphemed against Moses and against God. And so they began, they, they bring formal charges against him and bring him to the Sanhedrin, to the council. Verses 13 and 14. This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place 
and change the customs which Moses had delivered, has delivered to us. This is a very serious accusation since they were claiming that Stephen was speaking against the temple and against their law. And, of course, the temple was the house of God. The law was the word of God. And so to speak against either was to blaspheme against God. Specifically, it was what Stephen was saying about Jesus that disturbed them. But, of course, they were twisting and they were misrepresenting both Stephen's and Jesus' words. Remember, the church was then and is now representing Jesus to the world. And when we represent him accurately, Jesus said that we could expect the same reaction from them that he received. You see, a watered-down, altered Jesus is really the only kind of Jesus that is acceptable to the world. A generic Jesus. Not the actual Jesus. I was thinking, imagine Jesus posting this statement on the Internet. What kind of response it would get. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they keep my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which I, which no one else did, they would have no sin, but now they have seen and also hated me and my father. But this happened that the world, excuse me, that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Comments are open. Remember also these words of Jesus? Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all manners of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus did... Uh, Jesus did say that he would replace the temple. Right? Well, in the trial of Jesus, in Mark 14, here's what we read. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple and uh, made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands, but not, but not even then did their testimony agree. So even while Jesus was on the cross, and those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Now, of course, this is what Jesus really said. John 2. Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. 
Then the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this to them and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had said. Thus, Jesus dared to speak of himself as God's new temple, replacing the old. Matthew 12, 6, Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. So what Jesus was saying was that in the past, people came together to the temple to meet God. But in the future, the meeting place with God would be himself. Now, regarding the law, Jesus said that he would fulfill the law. Jesus and Stephen were accused of showing disrespect for the law, but the scribes and the Pharisees, as usual, didn't understand Jesus. What he actually did was to contradict the scribes' misrepresentations of Moses and thereby challenge the tradition of the elders. And by the way, Jesus was hated by the conservatives, the Pharisees, and the liberals, the Sadducees. Of course, Jesus was never disrespectful to the law itself. On the contrary, he said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And you can make the word fulfill whatever you want to make it mean, as long as it doesn't mean abolish. He said it twice. In particular, Jesus was resolved to lay down his life for us, and this would accomplish both the priesthood and the sacrifice. What Jesus taught then was that the temple and the law would be superseded, meaning not that they had never been divine gifts in the first place, but that they would find their uh, ultimate God-intended fulfillment in him, the Messiah. Jesus was and is himself the replacement of the temple and the fulfillment of the ceremonial law. As Paul would say, these were tutors to lead us to Christ. Moreover, to affirm that both temple and law pointed forward to him are and now, uh, to him and are now fulfilled in him is to magnify the importance of the temple and the law. So God did give the law and the temple, which was part of the story, but the story has now reached a new point. Prejudice and deaf ears would have none of it. Jesus was a threat to the old way of doing things. Jesus is still a threat to the old way of doing things. The false witnesses in Acts 6 said, For we have heard him, Stephen, say that this Jesus of Nazareth will will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. That is, they portrayed the work of Christ in negative and destructive terms. You know, Christians are so full of hate. But what Stephen was really doing was preaching Christ positively and constructively as the one in whom all of the Old Testament foretold and foreshadowed is fulfilled, including the temple and the law. And then finally, verse 15, and all who sat in the council, that's a large group, 
looking steadfastly. They're staring at Stephen. He's in the center. He's in the dock. Saw his face as the face of an angel. That that could just be kind of a little interesting side note, but let's dig a little deeper. It is significant that the council, staring at the prisoner in the dock, would see his face shining like an angel. Who do you think of when you hear that? Who would this group of men think of when they saw that? This is exactly what happened to Moses' face when he came down from Mount Sinai with the law. This is a powerful image and message that God was giving. The same radiant face that was given to Stephen when he was accused of opposing the law, God had given to Moses when he received the law. When Moses came down from the mountain, having been with God, Exodus 34, holding the tablets of stone on which the law was written, his face shone. As Stephen was being accused of showing disrespect for the law of Moses, Luke is describing Stephen in a way that demonstrated his complete acquittal by God. Stephen was a Moses-like figure. I really wonder if Saul saw that on that day. In this way, God was showing that both Moses' ministry of the law and Stephen's interpretation of it had his approval. Indeed, God's blessing on Stephen is evident throughout. The grace and power of his ministry, his irresistible wisdom, and now his shining face. These were all tokens that the favor of God rested on Stephen. And in chapter 7, we're going to see a very unusual manifestation of God's favor on Stephen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for calling us, saving us, and placing us in your church. Thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit and your word, and thank you for calling us to represent Jesus to the world. Help us to not live in fear of men, but rather to be bold in speaking the living word before them. Help us to love and serve your church, to share our blessings and minister to those who are in need. And may the world see our love for one another and thereby know that we are truly your disciples. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Fill us with bold and courageous faith that we might trust you and move. Grant us to see that our earthly hope is in the gospel of Christ and that we might act now to build and advance your kingdom. Enable us to obey your call that we might actively evangelize the nations. And so we pledge to preach the word, to be instant in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine.
indeed, to teach men and nations all things whatsoever you have commanded. The nations weary themselves in vain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, because the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Bless now our feasting and our resting, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen.